0: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello, this is Holly Chick. Welcome to a special feature episode of Inside China.
1: I'm standing here at the front of the School of Public Health of the Hong Kong University here in Hong Kong. And I'm going to do something that even though I'm standing by myself, it's going to cause me a bit of anxiety. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to take my mask off. This is a place I first visited with my colleague, Kin Ling Lo, just as the WHO had declared a pandemic, and that the coronavirus and this disease that it caused was going to be labelled COVID-19. Now, interestingly, if you don't know about this part of Hong Kong, It's just down the road from the Queen Mary Hospital. Now there's an interesting little fact about the Queen Mary Hospital, and that is in 1968, when there was a flu pandemic, a pandemic of something called the Hong Kong flu. The Queen Mary Hospital was where they isolated the strain of what was then the mutation of the H2N2 flu variant. And that had been descended, of course, from the Asian flu from several years before. Now this building itself, the School of Public Health, was opened in 2004 in the wake of SARS and one of the people who was attracted to come to work here from overseas was the person that we spoke to in February last year and we've spoken to several times since and it's about time I think we checked in and had a bit of a chat with Dr Ben Cowling. And if you've been a regular listener to the Inside China podcast and our specific pandemic episodes, you'll have noticed that very often the forecasts he makes of what's to come are quite accurate. So let's pop inside and and have a listen to what Dr. Ben Cowling has to say as the world comes to grips with the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. Dr. Ben Cowling, it's good to see you again. Uh, I assume you've done 10 interviews with the Omicron variant this morning. Uh, how are you holding up?
0: Yeah, it's already my third interview of the day today. It's, it's fine. Um, I'm happy to, to, to talk about uh, Omicron, talk about COVID, talk about public health. Uh, it's my passion and I, I, I love to talk about it.
1: This latest news, we're hearing that the forecast for findings and the dangers of the Omicron variant will come in days, not weeks? And if so, what are you looking for in the data that
0: comes in? We've only heard about the Omicron variant for a short time. Uh, it's very new. There's some things we know about it. There's a lot of things we don't know about it. So so firstly, the things that we do know, uh, it's, a, it's a new variant of COVID-19. It's changed a lot compared to previous variants. There's a lot of mutations, particularly on the critical parts of the virus that are involved in the infection. So there's an indication from the genetics at least that this particular variant may be able to get around immunity that's been built up by previous infections or by vaccinations and that's really not ideal. Having said that, people who've been previously vaccinated or infected should still get some of the benefits of that in terms of their immunity against severe disease. So I'd expect to see in the coming weeks or coming months, maybe estimates that vaccines are still effective against severe disease with Omicron, but it's just that maybe they can't stop the milder infections and then the transmission. So places like South Africa that have had a lot of COVID infections in the past two years, they've had three major waves of infection, including most recently an epidemic with the Delta variant that only really stopped after the virus was unable to find anyone left to infect indicating that most likely there's a very high level of population immunity in South Africa against the Delta variant. And yet the Omicron variant is still able now to spread. We've also heard reports from many different countries of detecting Omicron in vaccinated people in Israel. There were two doctors who got infected who've had three doses of vaccine. And that's relatively more unusual for people uh, with the Delta variant. So that there is something to worry about with Omicron. What we don't yet know is how easily it's going to be able to spread in populations, firstly, like South Africa, that are, uh, are not having epidemics currently. Uh, maybe also I could say in Hong Kong or, or mainland China, if it did get in, how easily would it be able to spread? And also in places in Europe, North America, where where there's a large number of infections with the Delta variant, there's now going to be some kind of competition to see which virus can can still spread when there's another one. And what we've seen in the past, if you remember, there was before Delta we had alpha, beta, and gamma. So Alpha was in Europe, beta was in South Africa, Gamma was in Brazil, and actually the beta and the gamma did uh travel to other parts of the world, but they never really got a foothold. Uh there were only ever small numbers detected. The alpha variant won that competition, and then more recently we've had the Delta variant becoming the predominant one. So we'll have to wait and see if Omicron's going to displace Delta in Europe and other parts of the world uh, where, where there's this head-to-head competition. Um, it, it's not yet clear. And the severity is is, is not yet clear either. There's so, Sometimes I see on social media people talking about how viruses generally attenuate over time. It's not really true. Other people talking about how um, the virus is not going to atten- attenuate at all. And actually, that that's not exactly the, the full story. Because even if the virus stays exactly the same in terms of its severity over time, over the coming months and the coming years, we'll most likely see less and less impact of COVID for the same characteristics of the same virus, because once people develop immunity, whether it's through vaccination or infection, as that process continues, the virus can't cause as much severe disease anymore as it once used to. And so for you or me, our first infection could be more serious, or if we're vaccinated, we already have some protection against that happening second infection, third infection, fourth infection, each time is going to be milder and milder. And I can imagine a scenario where in 10 years time, exactly the same virus, exactly the same severity profile is actually more like a common cold to you and me, because we've seen it before. We've had infections with it before, and our body knows how to deal with it. And then you could say, well, if if the virus finds its way to a an isolated community in, in the Amazon jungle, in somewhere in rural China, somewhere in the Pacific Islands that's never had it before, even in 10 years time, it could be really severe because they haven't got that population immunity that, that other places would have. So that that's something to keep an eye on as well for Omicron. We heard reports that in South Africa, infections are generally mild. I'm not sure whether that's that's really a, you know, a comprehensive assessment. But uh, it, to some extent, because of the immunity in South Africa that's been built up from three consecutive epidemics, it, it wouldn't surprise me if the f- this fourth epidemic has relatively less health impact, even with a large number of infections. And then looking to the future, fifth and sixth epidemics would have even less impact. But that's for South Africa, where they've had a lot of infections. In Hong Kong, even though we've had four waves of infections so far, research from from my own team and also from Chinese University indicates that less than 1% of people have had an infection in Hong Kong. So less than 1%, it's really a tiny number. So we don't have that same level of of infections, even though our next wave will be our fifth wave. um, It, it could still be very serious because so many people have, have not had any infection. And then we do have uh, vaccines available. Some people have two doses, some people even have three. Uh, but I, I think we still have to be very wary of, of the threat posed by covid
1: Talking about not as serious, how important is this mortality rate for, for Omicron variant in, in for you and your team gauging the severity or the danger and risk
0: of this variant? There's a number of different ways we can measure the severity of an infection. So one of the things we have to be very, very careful of, and we, we've made this mistake before, is, is thinking too soon about what's happening and maybe missing the delay that we know is going to happen between when case numbers rise and then when hospitalizations rise and then when deaths rise. On average, it's maybe two weeks between a, a rise in cases until we see a rise in hospitalizations and another week until we see the rise in mortality. So it may well be that that if Omicron starts to be detected in increasing frequency in, in, say, Europe, that initially there'll just be more cases and maybe wouldn't think it's, it's so severe. But then two weeks later, there'll be an uptick in hospitalizations. And a week after that, uh, that there'll be an, an uptick in deaths associated with Omicron. And that that means we really need to be very cautious in interpreting the early information we see about this variant. And in Hong Kong, we can keep a close eye on the imported cases that come in. Uh, we've detected, uh, I think, four now in total, uh, or, or three imported and one that was infected in Hong Kong, but but in a quarantine hotel. Um, and I, I suppose we may, we may get more in the coming weeks or months. So that would give us our own local indication of, of severity in comparison to the Other kinds of infections like Delta that we've picked up in in recent months but uh, hopefully the virus won't get into the community because in Hong Kong I think we're still very vulnerable to a a large epidemic uh, of COVID and and uh, it seems like a long time ago that we were battling the fourth wave Uh, so I, I hope people are ready again if or when we do have community transmission to to resume all those measures that were in place last time.
1: Well given that almost every day a new bunch of countries added to the list of a persona non grata uh, by the Hong Kong government. This leads me to ask you about the issue of closing borders and restricting movement. Let's start with border closures. The WHO warned against border closures, and we're seeing almost every nation in the world beginning first with that handful of seven, eight countries in in Southern Africa and now expanding that. What's your view on border closures?
0: My view is to ask the question, what do you get in the – if you do the closures, and what do you get if you don't do the border closures, and I could take Japan as an example, where most likely Omicron is already in the community in Japan. And so looking forward to the next three months, if Omicron doesn't fizzle out, uh, I I think it is likely going to spread. In in three or four months time, there's going to be quite a number of of Omicron cases in Japan, quite probably on, on the way up in terms of an epidemic. And having now closed their borders and asking people not to even travel to Japan, I don't think ultimately there's going to be that much difference in when the case numbers are rising and how many infections ultimately occur in Japan. Uh, If they're lucky and they've managed to to, to maybe to, to stop more cases from coming in and, and the cases that are currently in the community, maybe they don't even know about them. If those cases for some reason fizzle out, then then maybe they could buy a bit of time. But the other consideration for these kind of measures is how long are you going to keep them in place for? Is Japan now going to close its, its, its borders effectively for the whole winter? Or is it just a measure for one or two weeks? Because if it's only a, a one or two week measure, then the maximum you could buy is, is one or two weeks. Uh, if it's a month, the maximum you could buy is a month. And I, I'm not sure what we can achieve by buying that time, other than being able to have a better handle on, on how serious Omicron is. And if we decide it's really serious, then we maybe bring in other measures. And if we decide it's not so much to worry about, then it was, you know, uh, maybe it was a good precaution, but we can then relax those measures again. Uh, other parts of the world, like maybe in Europe, I think in the US, they have targeted travel bans, unlike Japan, which is a blanket. So in, in Europe and the US, I don't quite understand the rationale for for banning travellers from certain countries. And I know that in the US, actually, there was was a situation just yesterday where Tony Fauci was asked, why is America banned not only South Africa, but a number of other Southern African countries, including countries that haven't reported any Omicron cases, but yet hasn't banned travel from other parts of the world where there are clearly larger numbers of Omicron cases. Japan just reported a case in someone travelling from Peru, so presumably there's, there's quite a no, number of infections in Peru. So, for example, why didn't the US ban travellers from Peru on that basis? It, it is not quite consistent. And we know that with experience with the Delta variant, even if you have a, a, a ban on the direct travel between two locations, the virus is still going to find its way through, through other locations. And before long, the prevalence is going to be higher in other parts of the world anyway. So those kind of targeted bans, maybe they, they score some political points because it looks like you're doing something. But uh, I, I don't think they have much public health impact. In Hong Kong, though, and also in, in, in mainland China, there's a slightly different rationale for the travel restrictions, uh, where we don't want to let any virus into the community at all. And we've already accepted that that uh, we're going to have minimal tr- uh, international travel in, in the coming months. So it's, it's a bit of a different situation to Europe and the US, where the airlines were actually getting back to the pre-COVID travel levels. And now, of course, now they're, they're having to, 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 to scale down a little bit. But in, in, in Hong Kong and in mainland China, the international travel is really very, very limited. I think in Hong Kong, we used to have uh, it 300,000 people per day coming into the airport or transiting uh, to or from the airport uh, on flights. And now, of course, it, it's just the number of hundreds uh, per day. So it's far, far lower. And when I went through the airport last year, it was very, very quiet at the airport. Really just uh, small numbers of travelers on, on most departing flights. So it's it's very different to, to the older days. For Hong Kong, I I, I do have a uh, maybe a specific kind of question about how we're going to make this sustainable. And in my opinion, in the coming maybe three months, six months, 12 months, I think it would be more sustainable for Hong Kong if we had a very large facility for for quarantine on arrival, uh, rather than relying on the quarantine hotels where clearly the government doesn't have uh, 100% confidence in the infection control at quarantine hotels because now arrivals from southern Africa have to go to Penny's Bay for seven days first, seven plus 14. And if there was no issue with the quarantine hotels, there would be no need for that kind of policy. So, so clearly, there's a recognised that there's a, a potential hazard associated with letting travellers uh, quarantine in, in hotels, where we have 11,000 rooms. I think there's maybe 3,000 or 4,000 rooms for this purpose at Penny's Bay, but we may need those for, for local quarantine if we do have a community outbreak. Um, so, so those rooms are not necessarily purposely set aside for on-arrival quarantine. We're just using them at the moment as a, as a temporary quick fix so if we could have a, a, a more long-term solution maybe at a site near the airport perhaps 20,000 or even 30,000 rooms available we could actually then welcome people coming into Hong Kong we don't need the 21 days of quarantine as far as I can tell the only reason we have 21 instead of 14 days is because of the transmission events that have occurred from time to time in quarantine hotels for people in their second week and then they develop Uh, symptoms and and start shedding virus in the third week and so we have day 19 positives Uh, if we could eliminate the within hotel transmission we could very clearly establish that 14 days is sufficient so we have a non-arrival facility tens of thousands of rooms 14 day quarantines for everybody who comes in and we don't need to then block non-residents from category a countries we don't even need a, a separate categorization of different risk levels. We can just say wherever you come from in the world, you're welcome to home, come to Hong Kong, but you've got to get a room in this facility and you've got to stay there for 14 days. Um, and I think that would be a much more sustainable uh, future for Hong Kong. And that could be in place for, for not only months, but potentially for years, depending on what happens in the mainland and what happens in the rest of the world. Uh, because at the moment, it seems like we're, we're having quick fix after quick fix. And haven't really made a longer term plan for, for this kind of situation. So for personally, I, I, I'm not that keen on, on quarantine in the longer term. I think Hong Kong's, you know, it, it, one of its strengths is being a, a gateway into, into China for the rest of the world. And if we have this quarantine in place for years, it, it's going to have a massive impact on the city. But at the same time, I recognise the public health advantages of the zero COVID approach and the opportunities presented by having a travel bubble with the mainland. Uh, and so... If we're going to do it, let's do it properly. Let's let's do a, a really good job on zero COVID, and the first part of that is keeping the virus out of the community with strict on arrival quarantine.
1: For people who don't follow you on Twitter, truly one of the most interesting threads to follow in the past months was reading the daily updates of Professor of Epidemiology Ben Cowling as he went through hotel quarantine upon his return to Hong Kong, and you talked about personally your feelings about quarantine personally. What did you learn from that experience
0: so i I found the whole experience fascinating firstly, when I arrived at the airport, there was a a lot of kind of very temporary looking barriers being put up and 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 pla you know uh people pointing which direction you should be going in so there was there were some people working at the airport whose whose job just seemed to be standing and pointing um and then there were a lot of kind of very temporary plastic screens and and ad hoc solutions for for not touching the piece of paper that I touched. So I had to put it in a tray and they pick up the tray and pass it to the other person who scans it without touching it and then passes it back and I pick it back up again. And I, I feel like a lot of those, those processes could actually be made safer and more sustainable and, and, and more efficient, um, but it would most likely require um, renovating maybe one of, one of the, 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 the mid-core course terminals for this purpose. Uh, so there's a question if we're going to keep doing it for another year or, or multiple years, that would be worth it. If we're only going to do it for a few more months, then, then maybe we just stick with what we've got at the moment. And then at the, the, the leaving for the quarantine hotel, they sprayed my suitcases with some kind of solution. I don't know what it was or, or what was the purpose of that? I mean, it's, it's okay. If you want to spray it, you can spray it. But I, I didn't really understand the point of that. Um, and then at the quarantine hotel itself, it was, it was a very smooth process to get into the room. Um, I'd, I'd read ahead of time to be very careful about not putting a foot in the corridor because apparently if you step a foot into the corridor of the quarantine hotel uh, there's, there's security guards watching the CCTV 24/7 and you get flagged and then potentially taken to Penny's Bay instead of the the quarantine hotel and as we know quarantine hotels are thought to be more comfortable than than Penny's Bay um, let's take you back a step sure uh, the bus ride from the airport yeah. to the uh
1: to the hotel do you think it's odd that there's all these concerns about not touching things and then all the passengers just just get crammed into a bus and you know
0: take take the slow tunnel
1: instead of the fast tunnel back to the island
0: so i i heard some people have long journeys on 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 that minibus but i would say in defense of the department of health that that anyone on that minibus would have just tested negative for covid a few hours earlier because you know when you land at the airport you do the COVID test, you go to the holding pen, they make sure they've tested everyone's sample, everyone's negative before they then let you go on. So it's pretty unlikely that someone between testing negative and then maybe, I think it was probably three hours later, getting on that minibus, it's unlikely that someone would be highly contagious. But of course it, it it's a risk. And, and if testing was was free, then actually it would, I'd expect the, the testing to be done much more frequently in, in, in quarantine than it was. We only did it every three or four days. Um, and there's certainly, you know, if, it, if, the, if the testing was quicker, it, it would help a lot because there's a lot of time spent uh, waiting uh, for the test results. And uh, if I could just reflect on the, the most recent transmission event with the Omicron variant, that was a situation where the person's sample was most likely collected one morning, sent off to the lab. Um, ultimately, it came back positive probably that evening, and it wasn't until the following day that he was sent to the hospital. And it probably, I don't know what time it was. I I don't know the the detailed timeline. But that was then at least 24 hours that this person was shedding large amounts of virus. And if the testing had been done maybe more quickly, then that person could have been, and and if they'd been isolated more quickly, then maybe that would have have, have prevented the opportunity for transmission to occur in the quarantine hotel. And of course, that was a, uh, I think it was a, so the testings on days, one, three, five, nine, maybe. So, so there was a gap of quite a few days when, when a test wasn't done. And if he'd been tested the preceding day or two days earlier and already tested positive with a lower amount of virus, again, the, 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 the risk of transmission could have been averted, but, uh, testing is, is not cheap. It's probably 500 Hong Kong dollars each time a, a test is done. And, and with 21 days quarantine, that's potentially a lot of money just on testing
1: spoken to several people who experienced profound psychological impacts while inside hotel quarantine. What was your experience and how did you approach it? Did you experience anything like that?
0: I I know some people find it really tough and it it really does concern me if if this is going to be the the future for for Hong Kong for for years to come, that anyone coming into the city or or wanting to leave to visit friends or family overseas has to do the quarantine on return. For myself personally, I was all right in, in the 21 days. I had a lot of work to do. Uh, I had my laptop. I got one of my colleagues to deliver me a monitor and a keyboard so that I could work more efficiently. Uh, I had a treadmill delivered by, by a relative um, so I could do my, my exercise every day. I had some, uh, some some food as well to store in the mini fridge in the room uh, to keep me going. And, and I ordered some delivery sometimes. I ate the hotel food sometimes. So I, I was all right. The time for me went relatively quickly and I'll probably do it again once or twice or even three times next year because for, for many different reasons, I, I will have to travel next year. Um, but I know for some people it's, it's really that they dread thinking about the experience and the time uh, goes so slowly. And with the isolation, it's really, really tough. And I don't know how how that could be solved because the quarantine really is the first line of defense for Hong Kong in the zero COVID approach that we're following. Um, so, so it's, it's a necessary, uh, measure, but, um, I, I dunno, I, I wish we didn't have to have to have it.
1: And just speaking from, you know, my hometown in Melbourne, you know, last year, the weakest link was the fact that hotels aren't designed Mm. to be quarantine facilities. Now, see little discussions pop up in Hong Kong about something called a selfish mask yeah. and uh, various people being blamed for for exercising and breathing out uh, and causing cross infections you watched that debate or that discussion here in Hong Kong what was your reaction
0: I, I'm a little bit frustrated sometimes when I when I hear the exclamation for these transmission events and and normally what's picked on is some kind of presumed behavior by the guest which i'm not sure if it's even it's even confirmed that that's the the occasion when transmission occurred for example the guest opened the door without wearing a mask was that really the, the the occasion when the virus left the room and and then traveled down the corridor and infected the person we don't know and i, I think it underplays the the structural deficiencies in, in the entire system. So for example, I could say the most recent case in the Regal Hotel, blame was put on the guests for wearing a what's called a selfish mask with a an exhaust vent. So when you breathe in, you go through the filter. When you breathe out, the air goes directly out with a vent and it doesn't go through the filter. And in theory, it, it maybe doesn't catch as much of the virus as, as it otherwise would have. Now, although those masks are called selfish masks, I'm, I, I'm not sure there's a lot of data on how different they are to regular surgical masks and if that was really a, a major factor in this particular occasion. And I could certainly name an, a number of other circumstances that that, that I would consider as uh, playing a role. So if we were listing out all the underlying causes of, of why this transmission event occurred, number one, as you mentioned, hotels were never really designed for this purpose. Uh, we initially started last year mid 2020 with home quarantine for travelers from certain locations Um, but we quickly realized that in home quarantine it's very difficult to control every factor and if you've got someone else in the home who's not subject to quarantine then they could get infected before you realize and and spread infection in the community. Uh, In mainland China they still have home quarantine in some circumstances but the home has to be uh, I understand has to be entirely sealed and so everyone in the home is then under the same quarantine order and that would be a In my opinion, in Hong Kong, that would actually be doable for people that live in village houses uh, if if the Department of Health could check that it's completely sealed and no one goes in or out. But uh, for for various reasons, we we moved to the hotel quarantine system. But I I think that was a a good quick solution, a quick fix, but not necessarily a sustainable solution. And a number of times we've seen transmission occur in quarantine hotels, not only in Hong Kong, but also in Australia, New Zealand and And uh, other places, uh, also in the mainland, it's been reported that it's happened. So six months ago already, I I suggested and other people suggested the idea of having a designated facility custom built like Penny's Bay, but uh, I would prefer to see it be a little bit nicer or at least have a range of, of, uh, of options for people that are coming into Hong Kong. So you can have the Penny's Bay type economy option. You can have carpets on the floor for a deluxe option. You can have a bathtub. You can have... I don't know a big area. You can have a family suite for those who have children. You know, I I think you could imagine custom building a very nice facility, uh, very fast Wi-Fi. Because in Hong Kong we're a high-tech city. Why do we not have free, very very fast Wi-Fi in a location like this? I I don't understand why Penny's Bay has has supposedly has poor Wi-Fi. Because in a high-tech city that would be a very very easy thing to solve, and it would be a credit to Hong Kong that although you're in Penny's Bay, you can have the fastest Wi-Fi in the world all right and the, the food as well I I heard that it's sometimes difficult to get food deliveries into Penny's Bay I don't understand why that's the case and that's another business opportunity you can have the the food they provide um, and you could also order the the luxury menu if that's what you want if the head of HSBC comes to Hong Kong in the future and has to stay in in the the, the Penny's Bay 2.0 why can't he order his you know his favorite food from his favorite restaurant in Hong Kong all right, he's got to stay in, in in the room in Penny's Bay, but it could be a nicer experience. It could be something that that uh, you know is made then more sustainable. Now, so that that was sorry that was a that was one of the underlying factors. But then for me another one, as I mentioned, is the testing frequency. Where if if uh, people in quarantine are tested every day or twice a day or three times a day, we pick up the positives more quickly and we can isolate the the infected. Person, which is of course a very small minority of all the guests, we can isolate them more quickly and then prevent the transmission events. Um, there was a now. There's a, a requirement that people who have exercise equipment in their room have air purifiers in their room as well. Um, but I, I don't understand the rationale for that. And if that's such an important factor, why are hotels not required to have these air purifiers in every single room all the time anyway? Why is it only people who use exercise equipment like treadmills or, or exercise bikes who need it? Because uh, I could do 100 star jumps in my room and generate just as many aerosols as the person who's riding slowly on their exercise bike, having a leisurely cycle with, a, you know, with their iPad watching, watching TV. So it, 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 these kind of things don't, don't really make sense to me. They, they seem like, again, quick fixes and haven't really thought about sustainable longer term solutions. So that, that's two issues. And then another, a, a, another issue, which I wonder whether has a, a role in this particular incident in, in, in the Quarantine Hotel, is from my own experience, the meals are delivered to all the rooms at the same time. And so the cart goes down the corridor, putting the meal boxes on every room, and then the, the staff member knocks on every door. And I can hear the knocks coming, you know, three doors down, knock, knock, two doors down, knock, knock, next door, knock, knock, and then it's my door, knock, knock, louder and then it goes further down the corridor and that means everyone's opening their doors at the same time to get their dinner. Uh, you know that's a very very simple structural thing to fix just don't deliver everyone's food at the same time. But from a hotel's point of view that's the most efficient way to do it. But from an infection control point of view it's the most dangerous way to do it. You know if you don't want the doors open at the same time don't knock on the door at the same time don't put the meals out at the same time you stagger it and you think of other solutions. So so there's, there's a lot of kind of minor things that could be changed and uh, a new facility near the airport for on arrival quarantine would fix all of these things because then there's no shared corridors. Anyway, you know, in Penny's Bay, everyone's door opens to the outside and you have a little window where you, they, they pass the food inside. So there's a, a much, much lower risk of, of transmission from one room to another at, at that kind of facility compared to in a, in a hotel. So
1: it's interesting. We're seeing nations across Europe, as well as the USA, even Australia, go through these phases of wearing masks. They're not wearing them now. Reconsidering masks as the new waves of the of the virus spread. Meanwhile, here in Hong Kong, we've gone months without community infection. Yet there's zero debate about the need for masks here. Everyone just wears them on the streets. So, can you take us through some of your findings or or research into? the use and the usefulness of masks
0: we've recognized from the very beginning of the pandemic here in hong kong that masks have a role to play Uh, partly from the experience with sars and partly from experiences since then Uh, we know that masks can help Uh, we also recognize that masks won't solve the problem for us of, of, of covid transmission completely and if you remember back in the last two years in hong kong we've had first wave, second wave, third wave, fourth wave, all of these waves occurred despite everybody wearing masks in their city. So clearly, even when everyone wears masks, we can still have transmission of the virus. And it wasn't until we brought in the additional social distancing measures, closing closing some facilities, working at home, etc., that we got transmission under control. So we know that masks alone won't completely stop transmission, but they can certainly slow it down. And my, my own estimate is that there may be reduced transmission overall in the in, in the city or in another part of the world by maybe 10%, maybe 20%, which doesn't sound like much. But if you can do that from transmission cycle from one generation to another to another, every time reducing it by a little bit, actually it can it can add up to a lot of infections that are averted and it can slow down transmission. If you have other measures as well that are also slowing down transmission, then together you, you can you can actually really have a big impact on, on COVID transmission and the speed of spread. Now in in Europe right now, I know they're bringing back in mask mandates. Um, My experience when I was in the UK a few months ago is that some people are wearing masks, some people are not, um, on public transport, in shops, some are, some aren't. So having a mask mandate isn't going from zero to 100, it's going from maybe 50% to 100%. So don't expect a massive impact of that. But it is a visible sign of, of concern, a visible reminder to everybody that COVID is, is an issue and, and we do have to be careful about it. And I think it can encourage additional behaviours. There was a lot of talk early in the pandemic about how masks could give a false sense of security and maybe people would do social distancing unless they're wearing a mask and then they won't anymore. I, I think we've discovered that's not the case. That was maybe a red herring that actually when people are wearing masks, they're more wary of, of others. They're, they're, they're thinking more about, about the risk posed by COVID around them. In Hong Kong, we are still wearing masks. And I, I wonder sometimes why we're wearing masks outdoors, because I I, I don't think it's been necessary from the beginning. Uh, we know from, from research conducted in other parts of the world that almost zero transmission of COVID occurs outdoors. Uh, I would give the exceptions would be things like crowded bus queues or semi-enclosed areas um, like outside Times Square, where you've got you know large buildings on all sides. And if there's a large crowd there, even though it's... Outdoors it could still have there could still be a risk there but uh, in the country park I live near a country park and I see people wearing masks there uh, every weekend and I don't really understand the need for that because there's zero risk essentially of, of transmission in a country park and anyway in Hong Kong we, we don't have any cases we haven't had any community transmission really for the last six months. having said that though, if you remember there were a, a number of incidents in Hong Kong of like close shaves you near misses. Uh, one of them that I distinctly remember was the diplomat's family where they went sightseeing around the city. So this is a diplomat from overseas, came in with with uh, children, younger children, exempt from quarantine, didn't really stay at home. I think they were probably supposed to, but they didn't stay at home. They went up the peak. They went up the Big Buddha, probably a few other places as well, quite a lot of restaurants. Um, and for whatever reason, we're lucky that there wasn't transmission. But it does occur to me that somewhere like the Peak Tram, somewhere like uh, the, the Journey to the Big Buddha, When everybody's wearing masks, if there is that contagious case in the community that we didn't recognize, the mask can block the transmission. Where we need to be particularly careful is places where masks are not worn. uh, Because in Hong Kong, we've done a study to show that the majority of COVID transmission in the last two years that's occurred in the community in Hong Kong has been occurring in places where masks are not worn. So masks can help in, in offices, in in public transport, in, in other community locations, but we take them off in the home. We take them off in restaurants to eat, and so we take
1: them off during tango lessons.
0: Well, I I guess in those in the in the ballroom dancing lessons, they, they may not have been wearing masks, and of course in gyms as well. We know it, it's not easy to do exercise with a mask on, and so that speaks to maybe why masks are not more effective than than mechanistically. They could be if we do a laboratory experiment with a mannequin that's wearing a face mask, uh, perfectly covering the mouth and nose, and we put virus in the equation, we can see the mask is going to be really effective. It's not 100%, but it's going to do a lot of good. But in the community, as I mentioned earlier, maybe 10%, 20% reduction in transmission, actually when you're wearing it, it's better. But the fact is that we don't always wear the mask and there is going to be transmission in households, there's going to be transmission in other locations where masks are not worn. So we can't expect the impossible from masks. And I feel like some of the criticism of face masks comes from the angle that they're not perfect. And, you know, someone so-and-so still got infected, even though they wore the mask all the time. And I, I think we, we have to recognize we can't expect perfection, but we can expect them to have some benefit. And it is important to, to, to keep wearing them, particularly when COVID's in the community. Um, and for now, I can understand why the mask mandate is still in place in Hong Kong, uh, in, indoors, because if there was a case in, in, in the community that we didn't know about, the masks are, are going to help to prevent potentially an outbreak. Maybe we didn't, we didn't know about it, but because we're wearing the mask, it, it's, a, it's a very sensible uh, precaution. And it's something relatively easy that the government can instruct rather than the, the social distancing measures that are more disruptive. So in Hong Kong, it it does make sense to me that we have mask rules indoors, although I know we're getting tired of wearing masks for for now, almost two years.
1: I'm gonna play you some audio now from February 2020. Uh, And this is the first chat, we got you to make a forecast. Let's just have a listen to what you had to say then.
0: Let's say that China's been very successful in containing outbreaks in Wuhan and other cities in China and let's say that maybe the epidemics will fade away in China. Unfortunately, I think we still face the possibility that infections have been seeded into other countries in Southeast Asia. And so right now, there's been a lot of talk about closing the border with China and stopping people from China coming into Hong Kong, because that's where infected people have been coming from. I could hypothetically say, in a few months' time, we'll be talking about closing the border to other countries in Southeast Asia where there's community transmission and epidemics. And- so having listened to yourself back almost two years ago,
1: where are we now in this pandemic? What have you observed and learned in the past 23 months and, and what lies ahead?
0: I think that the spread was faster than maybe I imagined there where I was talking about in a few months across Southeast Asia. Actually within a month we were getting cases coming in from all around the world and there was a really rapid spread of this infection and it's been extremely disruptive for the the last two years. It's caused an enormous health impact and of course economic and social impact as well. I feel like until very recently we could see the light at the end of the tunnel. I know in Europe Uh, They were starting to relax their measures finally because the vaccine coverage had reached a high level. We've been waiting for vaccines. We got them. Vaccines are at a high level. So we recognized uh, we can't relax and, and go to zero cases when the measures in the UK, other European countries are relaxed. There will be an exit wave, but it hopefully wouldn't have too much impact, can be mitigated. And then after that's over, then the pandemic could be over for those locations that have, have chosen to follow that path unfortunately now with the omicron variant it's a bump in that road and and i'm not sure maybe there's another bend in the tunnel and we thought we could see the light of the end but it's a little bit further because most likely uh we we'll have to see with the omicron variant but 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 uh i think it's likely that the omicron will cause epidemics around the world uh hopefully because of the High vaccination coverage and also to some extent the immunity from natural infections, uh, the impact won't be as bad as it had been in the past. People are tired, though, of the of the public health measures, and it's going to be difficult for governments to keep such strict measures in place going forwards. So this winter could be a, a tough winter with with Omicron and with Delta still around as well. Uh, hopefully, looking into next year, much of the world will be able to then start returning to normal. Truly returning to normal. Uh, with pre-COVID behaviors and travel patterns and so on. For Hong Kong and China, the path is maybe less clear. I'm not really sure what's the exit plan for, for China in terms of uh, getting out of the zero COVID approach because I, uh, I, I'm i reluctant to predict that in five years or 10 years time, we'll still be having a zero COVID policy in, in Hong Kong and in mainland China with strict on arrival quarantines and so on. But I'm not sure if, if, if we have relaxed by then what would make the difference? Because we now have highly effective vaccines, particularly protecting against severe disease. Uh, We have antiviral drugs coming online. um, And I'm not sure what we're waiting for in terms of uh, thinking about relaxing the public health measures. Obviously, there there is an option to keep zero COVID in place in the long term. And in the mainland, um, I I, I can see the, the pros and cons of that for Hong Kong as well. If mainland China's Doing zero COVID, then it, it makes sense in Hong Kong to be part of that bubble and do it as well. But that's uh, a big change for Hong Kong from being the gateway into China to 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 maybe no longer having that same that same role anymore. But but that's beyond public health; that's a, a, a bigger issue and a bigger discussion. So so I I'm really not so sure what what the future holds in 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 China at the moment it, with the very strict on arrival quarantines, the very stringent measures whenever outbreaks do occur. I think it's uh, uh, the situation in terms of COVID is under control. Uh, for Hong Kong, we haven't yet faced an outbreak of COVID after vaccines have been rolled out. The fourth wave ended earlier in 2021, probably March, April with the final cases in the fourth wave uh, and the vaccine coverage has gone up a lot since then. But when the virus does get into our community and trigger a fifth wave, I'm not sure how stringent the government's going to be. When we look at what happens in mainland cities, they're extremely stringent after just a handful of cases. Uh, You can see almost total lockdowns and mass testing and using all the information at the government's disposal to find uh, who might be infected and who might have been exposed to that and targeting measures on those people so that within a week or two after the, the lockdown, it can be relaxed and the people who may have been exposed, the cases and the contacts are still uh, under isolation or quarantine for, for some longer period of time, but the rest of the city can return to normal. I haven't heard a similar plan for Hong Kong. If we still use the same measures we used in the third wave and fourth wave with work at home policies, social distancing and so on, it may not be enough. And I worry that if if we try the same measures that were tried before, uh, with Delta being much more contagious, most likely Omicron as well, then we, we're going to see more and more cases coming up. And then Really, it could become a very difficult situation with a large number of cases in a, in a short space of time and then requiring the very stringent measures, but maybe later than than they could have been applied. Uh, but I hope that won't happen. I hope that in Hong Kong, if we talk again in six months or 12 months time and we're following the zero COVID approach that we've succeeded in it. So my, my personal view is that we have to eventually choose a time to live with the virus. And I I can see maybe nothing on the horizon that makes it better to wait. Uh, except for the potential for a a travel bubble with with China that hasn't yet started, that a lot of people are very enthusiastic about. But if we are following the zero COVID approach, I'd like it to be done as, as well as possible, because the major advantages for the zero COVID approach for Hong Kong are that we keep cases out of the community, we keep the disruption to the community to a minimum. So ideally, we go another six months, another 12 months without any community outbreaks, without a fifth wave. And then also we get the bubble open with the mainland. If we don't get a, a travel bubble with the mainland, I think really we're not benefiting fully from from that zero COVID approach because we'll be in our own little bubble in Hong Kong. Uh, so I really hope the next time we talk that that travel bubble will be in full swing and there'll be hundreds of thousands of people crossing the border each way, every day. Dr. Ben Kelly, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can find more on scmp.com. I'll see you next week.